Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and also making things. And we like to start by talking about that. So what have you been making recently? I haven't done anything that spectacular, I'll be honest. Just like continuing existing projects. But I did learn that if you make brownies in a bunt tin, you get like, because I really like corner pieces. So you get like a, a wedge that's like a corner piece, but then as you go through it, it gets really, really gooey. So it's it's the best of both worlds. Oh, honestly. wow. It's like all corner. It's all corner, but it's still gooey. And sometimes corner pieces are dry. <laughs> it's just bunt brownies. <laughs> go, if you're listening to this, go and make brownies in a bunt tin right now and thank me later is that does it come out just like one giant uber brownie oh yeah like i do cut it up because i mean to be fair if you make it as a tray bake it also comes out as one giant uber brownie that you then have to cut up yeah but what if you uh what if you just uh, take a bite what is a bunt cake if not a giant donut This changes everything. <laughs> Have I blown your mind? Yeah, that was uh, real-time sound of my mind being blown by the concept of Uber Brownie. I think I do now at some point have to make like an actual donut batter and bake it in my bunt tin. Just like how many things can you bake in a bunt tin? I mean, I've seen bread being done in it, and a donut's like between bread and a cake. I'm gonna have to do this. Solid. Definitely. So, what what have you been up to? <laughs> um. Okay. So, uh, remember last time I I bragged about my passion fruit chocolate tart. <laughs> um. So I actually saved the passion fruit skins and I um I I tried dyeing with them because I kind of got interested in natural dyeing. I mean, I guess I've been interested for a while, but I couldn't really be bothered. <laughs> um, so it it just tends to be like the interest will build up until I have an impetus to actually do the thing. So I guess because I very rarely have passion fruit because I live in England. Um, I was like, oh, I should like take the opportunity and, and see what color this makes. And um, well, what I got was like beige. <laughs> um, it was disappointing. Yeah, it wasn't that inspiring, but um, it definitely worked. Like it's gone a different, the wool went a different color. So that's kind of encouraging. Um, I feel like maybe I left them in the fridge for a week. Maybe that was bad, but um, I now have a book on natural dyeing. So watch this space, I guess. <laughs> I'm definitely going to try some more. That, that is very exciting. Yeah. Um, I really want to try dyeing with woad because it doesn't turn blue until you lift it out of the dye pot and expose it to oxygen and then it just magically goes blue it's amazing 
Yes, I remember a while ago you did say you, you'd planted some woad to try and die with. I did, and then um, the comfrey that was like all up in the soil just kind of took it over. There is there is woad there, but it's like it's it, there's like Godzilla comfrey <laughs> all around it, um, and there's only like three or four woad plants. So I'm hoping they'll spread a bit, and also my motivation for gardening is very fleeting so i basically planted it and then was like okay done <laughs> and then kind of <laughs> didn't do anything else in your defense it's really cold right now yeah <laughs> um but it is there so you know hopefully it'll still be there and i can collect more seeds from it and i think maybe i shouldn't have planted I, sh I should have planted it in um pots first and then transferred it because my problem was i like dug over the ground um and then which took ages and then just planted it but the problem was there were lots of seeds for various things already in that soil and so when things started coming up i couldn't tell what what was woad and what wasn't that mm. was an difficult sentence <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that is a true there. i can't talk now. <laughs> i was trying to say that's a true tongue twister which is apparently also one yeah so i didn't know what to weed out and what to leave so now i just have a lot of like plants i don't want and some weed so i think next time i would like grow them a bit first and then put them in so i know what to take out but that's ongoing one day so speaking of segues <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I tried to it i couldn't get there but i'm gonna talk about tea Oh, excellent. Okay, I yeah, I, I actually didn't know what we were talking about today. So any specific, specific kind of tea or just like the realm of tea? Well, I'm, I'm going to focus on your classic Camellia sinensis, which is the black, is that... is black tea, okay. green tea, uh, oolong, blue tea, you, you know, your classic teas. Okay, so they're like all the same species. They they all come from the same plant. Really? Um, te technically, if it isn't Camellia sinensis, it's a tisane, and that includes ah. uh, red tea because that that's a, a different plant. Really? Mm. No way! I'm drinking red tea right now. <laughs> I always thought it was the same plant, just like a red version. No, um, red bush tea, which I'm never sure how to say, um, but I think it's rooibos. Something like um, that. It comes from a South African plant called mm -hmm. Aspelanthus linearis. Okay. But, um, yeah, the Camellia sinensis, um, you might be able to guess from the name, comes from China, or at least that sort of area mm -hmm. that's like, Southwest China, Tibet, northern India kind of zone. 
the T zone. Yeah. But British people found it in China and we named it, so it's called Sinensis. Interesting So, you know how words for tea tend to come under, there's like words that sound like tea and words that sound like chai? Mm hmm. Um, I found this great map which um, basically illustrates that if the tea spread through land-based trade routes, it tends to be a cha or a chi or a chai. Mm-hmm. And then if it was through um, sort of shipping lanes, it tends to be a tea. The oh. tea of sea. <laughs> Interesting. Why, why does it become different? Let's see. Um, it's different, sort of, because obviously China is very big, mm-hmm. um, and contains different languages that aren't just Mandarin Chinese. Um, in one of these languages, um, more inland, it was Cha, and in a coastal one, it was uh, Te. So it's it's purely just getting it from slightly different Chinese people. Oh wow, that's so cool. I wonder if it could explain my dad, who like, like talks about tea all the time, but then specifically whenever is making tea after like a really long task, describes it as a cup of cha. So yeah, it's okay. it's common for sort of older British people to call it cha, um, probably because of British colonialism in India. Oh, okay, um, it's sort of evolving from chai, and m- the middle class calling it that because they got it from India. Therefore, it was chai, or che, or something in that zone. Not very ah. good at pronouncing Hindi. Um, versus calling it tea getting it through more through um sort of the east indies from from um java that kind of region okay i I will post the map because it's it's just a very good demonstration of a thing i'm not very good at explaining verbally apparently (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's what maps are for yeah um so do you know either of the sort of supposed origins of tea there's a chinese one and there's an indian one do you know either okay of them? i think i know the chinese one mm-hmm. um is it the story is like there was a, a princess who was um doing something out in the gardens i I can't remember what that involved like hot water and a leaf from the tree above her fell into her cup um, and, and it was delicious or something like that. That's basically it, yeah. Um, it's, sometimes it's a princess and sometimes it's an emperor but, basically, but drinking just hot water was 
a thing in ancient China. It's supposed to be healthier than drinking cold water. Okay. Um, the Indian one is a little bit grosser. Okay. Um, the story goes that um, Prince Bodhidharma, the founder of Zen Buddhism, mm-hmm. um, vowed to meditate for nine years without sleep. Towards the end of the nine years, he fell asleep. Oh, no. And when he woke up, he was so angry that he tore off his eyelids and threw them to the ground. And a tea plant sprung up. It's like... Oh, my God. Tea leaves do look a little bit like eyelids, I guess. But that is an absolutely horrific story. That is entirely horrific. I kind of love it. Like I, I do like it more than the Chinese one, just because it's, it's, it's so visceral. <laughs> I know. I guess the Chinese one like makes sense. You know, you're like, oh yeah, I, I can, I can see how that would happen. Um, that's just like, hmm, that's a hot take. Yeah, it is interesting that it's Zen Buddhists though. Hmm. Supposedly, it's Zen Buddhists that took tea to Japan. Okay. So there's a Chinese book called the Cha Ching, which is just which is sort of about um, yeah, it's basically considered the definitive text on tea for the time. Um, its author was known as the Tea Saint. That is and amazing. Um. Yeah, based on this book, the tea ceremony was developed, which was then exported to Japan by Buddhist missionaries. Wow. So there's like a lot of um. A lot of um. I I can't think of the word, but you know when um, something originates in in one culture and then goes to another and then kind of ends up getting transferred back to the first one again, but a bit different and then so on and so forth. Yeah, there's a lot of cross-pollination, I guess. That's it. (laughs) Um, Interestingly, apparently the Buddhists were using it using tea to stay awake during meditation. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's, if you don't have coffee, it's the, it? the most caffeinated Yeah, thing. it's it's caffeinated, yeah. But I just love that because that kind of ties back to the story. It's like he <laughs> couldn't stay awake and then he made a thing that helps you stay awake. <laughs> Out of his own eyelids. Yeah, it's best not to think too much about that part. Um, so the first European to write about tea was um, also a missionary um, a Portuguese one who visited China Um, the writing about tea at at this period sort of the 1500s is a bit odd though like, there's all these rumours about this mysterious Eastern drink. Um, 
or possibly like salting the leaves and eating them after boiling them. Hmm, that doesn't sound it good. It really doesn't. I'm just gonna eat some salty leaves. Oh like, no! I don't like salad, but that sounds worse than salad. <laughs> That's like on the same level as um, British people trying to eat potatoes raw, right? When they first came yeah. in, and like the leaves are so small as well, it would be hard. You'd have to eat it with a spoon, which would <laughs> just be horrendous. <laughs> oh no! Salty spoon leaves. I don't think it would have got quite as popular. Probably not, no. <laughs> it's it's funny to think about though, because it's something that is just so like commonplace to us today. Um and then it Yeah, it's it's funny to think that um our ancestors in the West like just had absolutely no clue about what to do yeah. with this exotic Eastern beverage. So yeah, it it sort of makes its way to um, to the West through Dutch traders. Um, you've probably heard of the East India Company. There was a Dutch one as well. Yeah, yeah. Didn't they have a lot to do with the spice uh, trade as well? Yeah, we will absolutely do an episode on the spice wars because that was a whole thing. Mm. Mm. Mm, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Right? Um, but yeah, drinking tea as sort of an elite activity spread very quickly from Holland. Mm. Um, yeah, we've got for popularity in Britain, though, we've got um, Catherine of Braganza. You may remember her from Forks. <laughs> um, yeah, she was Portuguese. Charles II who sh of England, who she married, had grown up in Holland. So they introduced tea to Britain as well. Basically a 17th century influencer. Absolutely. I mean, at, at this point, the royal family basically are influencers. Mm-hmm. Like what? What they do, everyone else does. There's the story about wigs becoming popular because the king of England was bald and started wearing a <laughs> wig, so everyone else started wearing wigs. Oh my god! I can't remember which king it is, and it's also probably exaggerated, but it's it's a heck of a story. Hmm. And. Honestly, if there's one thing we've learned on this podcast, it's if if it's a good story, then it's going to spread. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, probably should. Um, but yes, yeah, so you've got the Dutch East India Company. Um, and then the British one gets set up afterwards, but very quickly establishes a tea factory in uh, Macau, which is um, mm -hmm. yeah on the coast of China. Yeah. 
And yeah, it just keeps spreading through a combination of very dodgy trade because colonialism and also just regular colonialism. Um, but there's a beautiful story. Um, this one probably is true about the British East India Company um, basically trying to find out where tea actually comes from so they can end this Chinese monopoly <laughs> on it. So the British Tea Commission, the British Tea Committee in the mid-1800s sends Robert Fortune undercover to China oh, wow. to find out how tea is farmed <laughs> and processed. <laughs> oh, I, I think I've heard, I don't know if it's this particular one, but essentially somebody smuggling tea out of oh, yeah, China. That's the guy. That, this is, this the, is guy. the guy. Okay. <laughs> that guy. Um, he also brought back Chinese tea experts. Okay. Um, and then you have in the eighteen twenties, um, large quote marks here discovering, um tea bushes just growing wild in Assam and Darjeeling woods, which may ring a bell if you like tea. Mm -hmm. And combining that with this knowledge to set up um, tea estates in India, and Indian tea was a, became a lot more popular than Chinese tea in Britain. Okay. Uh, so tea was already like the tea plant was already in india but people just weren't drinking it or um the problem is most of the accounts we have are by employees of the british east india company okay so like i said the word discover is hmm. certainly a choice that was made by some british people doing Capitalist colonialism. <laughs> I feel like that can apply to a lot of the subjects on this podcast. Yeah, but yeah, they they found the tea, and then they went, "I know, let's grow some tea," and then oh, they all got rich on lads. tea. <laughs> what a surprise! So yeah, that's that's the basics of how tea got to Britain. But I think I do have to mention, um, yeah, I've, I've been learning about tea grading. And okay. it's a lot. So I'm assuming that's when you like separate the teas into like, this is the best tea and this is the other tea. Yeah. So. You have um, OP, which is, um, I believe it stands for Orange Pico, which is basically, this is a whole decent leaf. That's what you tend to get in loose leaf versus um, mm -hmm. tea bags, which tends to be the lower quality stuff. 
And then it can be described as things like flowery, golden flowery, tippy golden, which are all, those are sort of increasing quality. Um, tippy golden is just the very tip of the leaf. <laughs> oh, that's kind of charming. It's, it's tip and top. It sounds like the name of a Jeeves and Worcester character. It really does. Oh, it's it's uh, young Tippy Golden. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I thought I gave her the slip at uh, Aunt Aunt Agatha's ball last year. <laughs> I tried to foist her off on Gussie Fink Nottle, but she doesn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so you can combine all of these different letters. Um to make the different grades. Um, so the, the very, very best T is F-T-G-F-O-P, um, which uh, apparently there's like an inside joke among T aficionados that it stands for far too good for ordinary people. <laughs> That's adorable. You can basically stick a B in front of any of those to just say, well, it's like that, but worse. Because the leaves are broken. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where, I mean, where do you get this magical perfect tea? Like, is it available I mean, to... I, I haven't been able to find it on any of the places that I buy tea from, but I am a mere pleb. You probably get it from <laughs> Harrods or something. Yeah, I bet. If anyone has any tips on the far too good for ordinary people tea, I want to try it. <laughs> Let us I, know. I've been learning a lot about tea and which teas I like and the the subtle differences between different kinds. I want to try oh, the very, very good tea. <laughs> is that your life's it quest? It is. Um, so... Yeah, you probably know about the uh, tea, especially green tea, is seen as a very healthy thing. Mm -hmm. um, probably, th especially things like antioxidants. That does get thrown around a lot. I like you see it on green tea boxes all the time, like detox or antioxidant, that kind of mm. thing. Um, so, is that true? Green tea does have more antioxidants and all, all of the good things. Um, so basically, the colour the color tea sort of uh, green, white, blue, black um, describes how oxidised mm -hmm. it is. Okay. So green tea is hasn't been oxidised at all, contains... All, all of the good stuff. Oh, okay. So black tea is like it's been dried, or um, well, it's it's oxidized rather than dried. So it's um, because all all tea leaves, the certainly that that we would buy in a shop are dried. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, I see. Um, but yeah, it's um. I'm going to double check, but I, th I think I know this, but I'm going to double check. Yeah, um, 
the tears ex- the leaves are exposed to hot air and they oxidize in a similar way to like if you burn something it oxidizes just less so because okay. it's hot air mm-hmm. um so green is pretty much not oxidized and then white is a little bit and then blue which is uh, your oolongs um are described as semi-oxidized and then black is just like it, it looks like that because the oxygen has done its thing okay and i don't really understand how antioxidants work but if you oxidize the thing it has fewer antioxidants which makes sense like in my brain because of the words but i don't really understand it <laughs> i'm not a chemist <laughs> but i guess yeah you know in in word sense it makes words it sense. makes sense <laughs> obviously now we also have a lot of and i mean then as well to be fair as a kind of folk medicine we have to sayings like herbal teas mm-hmm. um yeah i think the reason that they tend to be referred to as teas rather than to sayings is one because people know what tea is but also to mm-hmm. tends to be a much more like medical herbalist kind of way ref- of referring to it like if i offer you a nettle yeah. tea versus if i offer you a nettle to sane it's the same stuff, but one of them sounds like I'm trying to cure you of something, and the other one sounds like a nice drink. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I mean, we kind of refer to anything that is made by putting a plant in hot water as a tea, mm-hmm. right? Um, like, I only learned what a tisane is, like, a couple years ago. One thing that I want to mention before I wrap up, because I realise I've talked a lot. Um, So tea is made generally from the leaves of the Camellia sinensis. But there's also um, Kukicha or Bocha tea. Okay. um, Which is made of the stems and twigs of the tea bush. Wow, okay. Um, What's that like? I actually, I currently have some because I, I, I subscribe to a tea subscription box um, oh. and they sent me some kukicha in, in my box for February. And it's an, it's, wow. a, it's almost like lemonade, honestly. Like the, there's, there's kind of, there's, there was kind of an astringency to it and then like a sweetness. Like okay. it's still a green tea, but it, yeah, it's huh. it's complex. <laughs> tea, it's complex. Huh. that's kind of cool though. It's like it's not just the leaves. Yeah, you can you can drink the whole plant. <laughs> entirely drinkable i mean i haven't come across the roots being used but i bet you can use the roots (laughs) wow tea is amazing so um before hazel goes into the local larder i just want to say that we have a patreon 
Um, it's just bread and thread. There is a Patreon exclusive server where we talk a lot about crafts and food and things. Um, there's monthly recipes, and if you subscribe at ten dollars, pounds, etc., um, we will make a bonus episode just for you. I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. Cool. Um, so, actually, my local larder today is accidentally relevant because it's a Portuguese food. um so this is going to be a fairly short one because like almost all of the information i could find on this is in portuguese and i don't speak portuguese um so that it's going to be pretty light on the history side um but i just i just want you to know that this exists is that (laughs) a general view or is it me specifically um you specifically and also everybody else um i mean i assume if you're Portuguese, you know about it, but um, it's not something I've ever heard of before, and I feel like it probably wouldn't be very well known outside Portugal. Um, so this, I kind of found out about this from, I was thinking about like fish and chips, and I was like, well, I wonder if like there, there tends to be a version of fish and chips for most places around Europe that are coastal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, I, I wonder how like different fish and chips is around different places. Um, and so this is, uh, and of course it has to be properly regional, you know, I can't just be like, well, this is from this country because it's local larder. So it has to be an actual regional food within that country. So this is from the Portuguese city of Setubel. Um, which is on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's south of Lisbon, about 45 minutes south of Lisbon, apparently. Um, but it's not as well known as other places in Portugal because there's not as much money in there as there is in Lisbon at the moment. Um, so it's not as popular, like, touristically. Um but it's been, it's had a, a very strong fishing industry, um, basically forever. And apparently it was a center of fish canning in the 19th century, which is interesting. That's neat. Um, yeah, it's kind of neat. Um, and so they have a very famous regional food that is very associated with the city. It's called Choco Frito. Which sounds like it would have chocolate in it, right? To our English Yeah, years. like my immediate thought is fried chocolate. Yeah, it's cuttlefish. Okay. <laughs> it, it is uh, fried cuttlefish. Um, it's, yeah, uh, apparently they like boil the cuttlefish with some herbs and garlic, um, marinate it in white wine and vinegar, and then like, cover it in corn flour and fry it 
I mean, that does sound delicious. Which sounds pretty good, yeah. I mean, I've never had cuttlefish, but I have had squid, and it's nice. Yeah, you would assume it'd be similar to squid. Yeah, I feel like it would be tasty. Um, And normally it's served with uh, a lot of fries, like thin crispy chips or rice or something. Um, Or, like, you can have it as, like, a side just on its own. Um, So... Yeah, uh, that is what choco frito is, um, and I just I just love the concept of like <laughs> this this famous cuttlefish thing because I've never really heard of cuttlefish being eaten before. But I mean, now that I think about it, it makes sense. Yeah, um, I guess it's just in Britain your main exposure to the concept of cuttlefish is, or it's that weird hard thing you put in bird cages. Yeah, and sometimes you find it on the beach and you're like, what is that? Um, And it's cuttlefish. So, um, yeah, that's that's what Chocofrito is. Um, And in Setuval, there is a a restaurant that serves it that is also a small museum to the history of cuttlefish. Okay. The the cuttlefish was interesting, and then you said museum. <laughs> there is a cuttlefish museum <laughs> in Portugal. Oh, I have to go. Yeah, I really want to go. <laughs> this is the problem with researching. This happens every time. Like, yeah, <laughs> the road trip is expanding. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, there's there's a lot of places in the city that you can get this apparently because it is so like famous. Um, in fact, apparently it's so popular that it's it's kind of a local icon now, and there are like statues of it in the city. Like statues I, of I don't know. I haven't been able dish. I don't know. I haven't been able to find any pictures of the statues. <laughs> I, I just know that there are Choco Frito statues. That is wild, because a statue of a cuttlefish I can kind of get, but of a p- specific dish is mind-boggling. <laughs> I think it's probably cuttlefish-related. Probably. I don't know. Please, if you're listening to this, and you're Portuguese, and you know what the Choco Frito statues look like, send us a picture. Yeah, we, we need this. <laughs> I, I need to see um, yeah so um and and also um kind of linking into the uh when when i talked about jellied eels i mentioned that most of the eels used for this iconic british london east end dish come from denmark or um like holland or like you know somewhere that isn't britain um so they do still fish cuttlefish in Setubel, um, but they're kind of small now. They don't really get the big ones anymore. So the the big ones that they use for choco frito actually come from India. Well, that's that's kind of a shame, but also another food connection. Yeah, but yeah, you know, food connections, and I think that's kind of a theme in a lot of places that have this really, you know, popular historic food is like you know, overfishing or over, like, production of this thing um, means that it's 
it's not able to completely make this food itself anymore. It's 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 definitely something to think on. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a point in there somewhere. <laughs> um. <laughs> we haven't found it, but it's in there. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, food for thought, as you might say. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, I just I just wanted to talk about Choco Frito because I now know that it exists and could not keep that information to myself. I mean, I'm I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> um so yeah, if if you have an episode suggestion or want to say hi or want to send us pictures of statues of fried cuttlefish um you can email <laughs> bread and thread podcast at gmail.com uh we're also on twitter at bread and thread so check out for pictures and links and things and updates on when the episodes come out and also me posting hints as to what the next episode will be because i like doing that i guess oh yeah that's a fun game <laughs> Uh, and we will see you next time.